0: These conditions, particularly Crohn's disease, used to be really quite rare. When we look at countries that are now industrializing or westernizing their diet and lifestyle, we see that these conditions, these inflammatory bowel diseases, just like heart disease and type 2 diabetes and hypercholesterolemia, start to appear.
1: Well, hello there. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download. Wherever it is in the world that you are, we appreciate the fact that you are here. Today's show is going to be devoted to the gut. Specifically, we're going to be talking about Crohn's disease. We haven't really had an opportunity yet to talk much about this on the show, so I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. Alan Desmond. He is here, specializes in gastroenterology. He is here to tell us about Crohn's disease, what it is, and more importantly, how a plant-based diet can help. And what stands out to me from Our conversation that you will hear, and you actually already heard this teased at the top of the show, is how the standard Western diet has led to a surge in cases of Crohn's disease. used to be quite rare, but then when you start to introduce all of these high-fat, high-calorie foods, it brought it on. So we're going to be getting into that today. Then we're going to be learning about how a plant-based diet, proper nutrition, can even help those who have had Crohn's disease for years and have undergone surgery because of the damage Crohn's has inflicted on them. Lots to get into today. Lots to get into today. And one of the things about Dr. Desmond that I really like, in addition to the fact that he's just a phenomenal talker and just someone that you could talk for hours with pretty much about anything, but specific to health here, he completed his training in both Ireland and in Oxford. Now, anytime anyone has Oxford in their credentials, you know that they know what it is. That they're talking about. And Dr. Desmond certainly does just that. So we will be speaking with him all about Crohn's disease and plant-based nutrition, and it is going to be a fantastic conversation. And then we're going to hear from Dr. Columbus Batiste, and we're going to learn about heart disease and nutrition and COVID-19 and what that does to the heart. I said this on the exam room live this week when I was speaking with Dr. Neil Barnard. It's not just a disease that attacks the respiratory system. That's what we first thought. But now we're learning that it attacks the body in so many ways, including, including the heart. So we're going to be talking with Dr. Batiste about that and I really think you're going to find it fascinating when I ask him what happens to a person right after they eat a fast food meal. What happens immediately and then what are the long-term effects if they eat that day after day after day? You're going to hear me say, paint the picture with your words. And he does. And he does. It's going to be a great show today talking Crohn's disease, talking heart disease, got COVID-19 thrown in there. We have a lot to learn, so let's not waste any more time. First up in the exam room is my conversation with Dr. Alan Desmond. As we continue here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee, we're going to shift gears and talk about a topic that we really haven't had an opportunity to discuss yet. In the three years of this show, I really don't think, with the handful of just a brief conversation we have ever touched on Crohn's disease... And that is going to change right now. And I'm so looking forward to being able to dive into this with my next guest. He is Dr. Alan Desmond, consultant, gastroenterologist, and an ambassador for Plant-Based Health Professionals UK. With that, we welcome to the show, Dr. Desmond. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us, my friend.
0: Chuck, thanks so much for having me on. I'm a big fan of your work, big fan of the podcast. And uh, yeah, also welcome to my home. You're you're currently in in uh, in my home right now. So uh, welcome.
1: I appreciate that. You know what? It's tea time. We're going to have a, a spot of tea together. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, real quick, before we go any further, how prevalent is Crohn's disease? How many people are living with this currently?
0: Yeah, so Crohn's disease is, is really very prevalent. And that's one of the reasons why it's becoming such a pressing topic. I guess when we go to diet lifestyle conferences, medical conferences, ICNM or Veg med or any of these, we tend to hear, and you know, deservedly so about things like heart disease and type 2 diabetes type 2 diabetes and obesity. And these are super important. They're really, really important. But just another another condition that's becoming incredibly prevalent are the inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So these conditions, I mean, the the most alarming papers that I've seen suggest that these, effect, these conditions, these chronic inflammatory bowel conditions, affect up to 1% of the population in, in high-income countries um, like the US, the UK, Australia, etc. So somewhere between 1 and 165 or maybe 1 in 100 perhaps. So everybody that I meet who learns that I have an interest in Crohn's disease and IBD, invariably, and I'm sure it's the same for you, Chuck, invariably they'll say, oh, I know someone with that. Or or maybe I have that. They're they're becoming incredibly prevalent.
1: So you said specifically high-income countries then. Could one surmise that it's less prevalent in countries that don't have that same type of affluence?
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. And I mean, this is the this is the key for me with um, inflammatory bowel disease. So th- these conditions, particularly Crohn's disease, used to be really quite rare. And then in the 20th century, kind of like post-war Europe, as Western Europe kind of industrialized its diet and lifestyle, these conditions started appearing and just kept increasing in prevalence to the point that they may affect perhaps 1 in 165 or even 1% of the population right now. And even in the 21st century, when we look at countries that are now um, industrializing or westernizing their diet and lifestyle, we see that these, these conditions, these inflammatory bowel diseases, just like heart disease and type 2 diabetes and hypercholesterolemia.
1: Um, start to appear. And so let's let's dive in specific to Crohn's disease. Uh, for those who aren't really familiar with it, we're talking about 1% of the population. Uh, so for the 99% who don't have it, can you walk us through exactly what it is?
0: Yeah, so Crohn's disease, um, and just to be clear, the 1% stat is regarding Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and other forms of IBD. Gotcha, so okay. Crohn's disease would be part of that, uh, perhaps 1%. So Crohn's disease, Chuck, is a tough disease to have. So if you have this condition, there are sections of your gastrointestinal tract, usually in your small bowel or intestine or your large bowel called the colon, which are suffering from long-term inflammation. So when you look at a healthy section of bowel, like I do in my job with cameras and scans, it tends to look a little bit like the healthy lining inside your cheek pink and glossy and healthy but with Crohn's disease you've got these sections of your gut which are red and sore and ulcerated and really unhealthy and because they're not healthy they're not functioning properly and because they're not functioning properly you'll get a lot of difficult to deal with symptoms like uh, diarrhea, weight loss, you can develop abscesses inside your tummy, abscesses around your bottom end Um, This is a condition that often affects young people, so even young children diagnosed with this condition, their pediatrician may notice that they're just not growing, not absorbing all their nutrients. And if you have this condition, uh, Crohn's disease, it has a real impact on your quality of life. In fact, about 75% of people with this condition would not describe themselves as having excellent or very good health About two-thirds of people with this condition will regularly um, miss time from school. If they're in school, about 40% will regularly be absent from work um, due to their condition and and due to the symptoms um, that they get from it.
1: Quite painful?
0: It can be. Not for every patient, but abdominal pain can be um, a predominant symptom Um, I described earlier how the lining of the gut is visibly inflamed, but sadly with Crohn's disease, that inflammation passes through the whole thickness of the tube. If you imagine a hose pipe, so it's not just in the inside of the hose pipe, it's all the way through the wall. So you can, as, it, as it gets more progressive and more established, you would even see the inflammation looking at the outside of that hose pipe. And that means that the passage that the food needs to get through becomes narrower and narrower so pain and cramping abdominal pain can be can be a symptom
1: that does not sound like a whole heap of fun to me um you no, kind no. of health disease yeah. You intimated uh, about this a little bit earlier on in the interview. You were talking about uh, how this is in more affluent countries. So you think of affluence, you think of the, the you know, standard Western diet. So let's talk about these diets and the cause and effect here with Crohn's disease. Obviously, uh, it sounds like the more high fat, the more high calorie, the more unhealthy the diet, the more likely it is that the person will, in fact, develop these types of symptoms.
0: Yeah, it's very much like so many chronic diseases, Chuck. I mean, you've heard this phrase before regarding other diseases that are common in high-income countries, whereby genetics loads the gun, diet and lifestyle pulls the trigger, right? We're all familiar with that phrase. When I was in medical school, we were told that people with Crohn's disease um, had just been unlucky in the genetic lottery, that they gotten bad genes, so their immune system was attacking their gut. We couldn't do anything about that. That, that, that ship had sailed but we could use medications and surgery to try and get them back into remission and improve their quality of life. In 2016, there was this huge study called the IBD Genetics Consortium. It was published in The Lancet, one of like, the world's major medical journals, and they had done like, this detailed genetic analysis on 30,000 people with Crohn's disease or the closely related condition ulcerative colitis. And what they found, they'd 30,000 people from Europe, North America, Australia, Asia, they'd done a detailed genetic analysis on them. What they found was, yes, there were certain genes that might predispose to developing these conditions, but they didn't definitely mean you would get them. And if you did have the disease, then those genetic risk factors had nothing to do with the severity of the disease. So even those, you know, um, incredible, skilled uh, geneticists who performed this meticulous gen- genomic analysis on 30,000 people. The body of work that went into producing that paper was immense. Even they said in that paper that the genetic variants that they had studied had a small effect, and environmental factors are more important, including diet. And we now know that Crohn's disease and the likelihood of getting that condition isn't just about genetic susceptibility. It's also about the environmental triggers. Food is a huge environmental trigger for this thing. We also know the way your body interacts with the contents of your gut and your gut microbiome is a big, um, a big factor here. It, the sorts of bacteria in your gut microbiome and how your body interacts with those bacteria is so crucial to this condition. And whereas in med school, I was taught that this condition is due to your immune system attacking your gut, what we now know is that the original target of this immune reaction isn't the gut itself. Your gut microbiome. So your your, uh, immune system is interacting with your gut microbiome in an abnormal and unhealthy way, generating an abnormal immune response. And the damage that I can see when I look inside of my endoscope or do an MRI scan is the damage that's being caused incidentally. Because your gut is reacting, or your immune system is reacting to your um, to your gut microbiome. Now, for my entire career, ever since I was like in my very first rotation in gastroenterology back in the early two thousands, we would see patients with this new condition, um, explain to them that they've just been diagnosed. They're often young people. Chuck, sadly, the median age diagnosis is like thirty. So they're young people. They're in school. They've got jobs. Maybe. You know, they've got young kids or they're new, you know, they're they're at that productive age. And you would explain, look, you've got this thing called Crohn's disease. It doesn't go away. You're going to need scans. You're going to need medication. You're going to need immunosuppressants. Uh, There's like a 50% chance in the next 10 years you're going to have part of your bowel removed by surgery because the damage will get so bad. And every single patient then and now asks the same question. What about? food? What about diet? Is there anything I can eat so I'll feel better today? And to improve my prognosis for the future. So throughout my career, I've been looking at these papers and studies on the role of diet in Crohn's disease and inflammatory bowel disease. Papers that appear in the same uh, major medical journals that I look to to learn the latest endoscopic techniques or the latest radiological techniques or the latest fancy medication that I prescribe for this kind and when you look at the papers you start to get a whole lot of clues about how the standard western diet almost seems designed to give us inflammatory balance
1: so let's let's talk about this uh first of all would i be correct in my blunt assessment here basically in that the majority of these cases we are doing it to ourselves
0: well, I, I, I wouldn't want to try and, like, assign any blame or anything. I think the food culture that we exist in is what drives these diseases. So if you grow up in a country like the U.K. or the U.S., where the food that's presented to you as desirable and convenient and tasty is, you know, highly processed, low plant, high fat, high saturated fat, high dairy – low in fiber, then that's what you're going to eat. That, that is what you're going to eat. And I mean, there's no, I don't think there's really any blame involved. Um, but I think the, the food industry and the food culture um, is feeding us this, this food, inverted commas, as we know, the, the standard Western diet is not a healthy diet. And it's the same sort of dietary approach or dietary culture that is increasing the risk of heart disease and type 2 diabetes and obesity and other autoimmune conditions, and it's predisposing us to Crohn's disease. So, I mean, so I'll just go through a couple of aspects. So one of the first studies that I really looked at in detail was a clue. There's some real clues out there that the more plants in your diet, and we know that people in the Western world don't eat enough plants, God knows, the more plants in your diet, the less likely you are to get Crohn's disease. So there's a nice study from the Harvard Nurses Study a couple of years ago, and they followed like 170,000 health professionals, females, for like 26 years. That's a big study. And what they found was that the women in that group, so it was predominantly women at that time, those with a higher fiber intake significantly reduced their intake, their uh, chances of developing Crohn's disease. But they were still only getting 26 grams a day, Chuck. The high-fiber nurses in the USA in the 80s, 90s, and noughties were just getting 26 grams a day. Mm. And we've seen similar papers for kids. The University of Montreal looked at this. They found that the more uh, fruit and veg and fiber in kids' diets, the less likely they were to develop inflammatory bowel disease. And why is that? Why would that be? Well, we know that fiber reduces inflammation. So fiber contains this, these microbiome available carbohydrates that we can't digest, but our friendly gut microbes love. They turn them into short-chain fatty acids. I think with Dr. B, my good friend Will Boltzwitz on recently, talking about butyrate and acetate and propionate. So with amongst all the numerous benefits, and we could do a whole hour on that, some of the things that those things do is they inhibit inflammatory mediators from being produced in the lining of the gut. So, in many ways, they're targeting the same mechanisms that our really fancy and expensive medications target. So, it, of course, it makes sense that eating more plants is going to help prevent this condition. Here's a really fascinating study. So, we know with Crohn's disease, people with Crohn's disease have this particular bacteria in their gut microbiome. It's called adherent invasive E. coli. Adherent in invasive, the clue's in the name. It's not usually there. It's not in a healthy gut microbiome. It sticks onto the lining of your bowel. It penetrates the normal gut epithelial barrier, and it promotes an abnormal immune response. And that is one of the triggers for Crohn's disease. Nice study done a few years ago where they had sections of bowel that had been removed from people with Crohn's disease because they were so damaged. And they were able to show under the microscope. that If you just took those sections of bowel, you could see this bug, this adherent invasive E. coli, doing its thing, promoting an abnormal inflammatory response. And if you took dietary concentrations of soluble plant fiber from things like broccoli and plantain, you could cut that process down by 70% just by exposing your gut to more fruits and vegetables. And if you took the same system and exposed it to the um, emulsifier polysorbate 80, which is found in things like hot dogs and soft serve ice cream, and every processed food essentially, you could double that disease process. So you can accelerate the process. And that was just one really nice study showing how healthy plant-based foods can help to prevent this problem, and how highly processed foods can promote this problem. All food plant-based in the U.K. and the U.S. About nine percent of calories coming from food like that right now. Highly processed junk food, full of artificial flavors and you know emulsifiers and all these artificial additives that have no business in a gatorade extract, making up fifty-five to sixty percent calories in standard. So when you when you know about these mechanisms and you know what the standard Western diet looks like. It comes as no surprise that these diseases are becoming more prevalent.
1: So you're talking about the preventative aspect of the plant-based diet, but let's talk about someone who unfortunately has already been diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Say one of your patients comes to you, they've been diagnosed What effect then can a plant-based diet have for them? We hear about the plant-based diets obviously being proven to reverse heart disease. Some say, you know, uh, reverse diabetes. Some call it a cure. Does the plant-based diet have that same effect on Crohn's disease? Can it go that far? Yeah, I guess
0: what we haven't had time to talk about today, but I'll be talking about a large conference in a few weeks at ICNM 2020. It's not just about more plants and fewer processed food or no processed foods. We know really that a diet that restricts animal protein and animal fat and dairy fat and artificial food additives and emulsifiers whilst providing dietary fiber takes all the right boxes for both preventing and treating Crohn's. Now that's a big mouthful that I, I just described. A diet that restricts animal protein and animal fat and dairy fat and emulsifiers and food additives whilst providing dietary fiber and adequate protein, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A nice shorthand for that, whole food plant-based. Now, we have seen several studies that you can design a dietary intervention like the one I just described, and you you can put patients with Crohn's disease on that sort of dietary approach and get very significant benefit. In fact, in some cases, you're as likely to achieve remission as you are with all the wonderful medications that we have to treat this condition. We've also seen studies showing that if you take our wonderful medications, um, which get about 30 to 60% of people into remission, if you combine those medications with a healthy approach, you can get your remission rates up to like 90 or 95%. Um, So last year, uh, Dr. Bernard, uh, Dr. Kaliova and I published a nice case report of a story just like this, a young man with Crohn's disease who achieved remission through a whole food plant-based diet that was published in the journal of nutrients. I'll be presenting some other cases at ICM 2020. But the fact is, Chuck, yes, I've seen so many of my patients either, you know, making the move towards whole food plant-based or going all the way to whole food plant-based. Tremendous benefit. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to stop doing colonoscopies, that I'm going to stop doing MRI scans, and that I'm going to not prescribe them the medication they need if and when they need it.
1: From my
0: perspective, as part of my practice, when I've got someone with a serious condition like Crohn's disease, I've got to use every tool in the box, and diet has to be recognized as a really powerful tool that we should be taking out every time we speak to our patients.
1: Now, here's a question for you. You use the term whole food plant based and a lot of people as uh, veganism is picking up more and more steam. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But uh, as more and more people are exploring the world of, of going vegan, they are eating foods that are, in fact, plant based yet still highly processed. Is there still a benefit in eating those compared to, say, a traditional hamburger? Will that still have a positive impact on Crohn's disease? Or is that information that we don't yet know?
0: That's information that we don't yet know for sure. But, I mean, certainly when you look at the overall healthfulness um, in terms of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, et cetera, we know that the more whole foods your diet, the better. And we know that maybe a junk food... Vegan is going to be healthier than a junk food omnivore, but they're st- they could still, they could both do it improving, right? They could both do better. One of the key things about um, inflammatory bowel disease, not only do I want people to avoid all the pro inflammatory things that we see in animal fat and animal protein, like the heme iron and the PAHs and the HCAs and the advanced glycation end products and the carnitine and the choline that produce uh, TMA, which your body turns into TMAO, which our gut microbiome turns into TMAO, not only are those things important, not only is it important to avoid the pro-inflammatory changes that an animal-predominant diet exerts on our gut microbiome, it's also really important to avoid all those junk food additives. I mean, a good example of a junk food additive is titanium dioxide. And silicates, okay? So these are things that are added to like uh, salad dressings or hard candies to, uh, and to quote, to color coat or preserve the food, which sounds like something you should be putting on your garden fence or your shed, (laughs) rather than into your gastrointestinal tract. And similarly, additives like maltodextrin, these are in the vegan junk foods just as much as they are in the other junk foods. I mean, a lot of existing junk food is accidentally vegan anyway. That doesn't make it a healthy choice. And for me, when I'm speaking to my patients, old food aspect is just as important,
1: Um, let's talk about vegan mainstream, right? Because it it is kind of getting there, you know, we're seeing it with commercials and, and celebrities endorsing this and more and more people on social media. Ooh, look at me, I'm vegan now. Fantastic. Right. But what about in the medical arena? Is the idea of eating a plant-based diet becoming more socially accepted among your colleagues in the medical realm?
0: Absolutely, very much so. Um, so several years ago, um, in in my clinical practice, I guess a lot of my colleagues thought I was, you know, a little bit, a little bit woo woo, a little bit out there, you know. Maybe, you know, Alan's been reading the wrong journals, you know. But as time has gone by, the weight of the scientific evidence is definitely entering the mainstream, and we are seeing articles appearing in the mainstream journals. Um, that I and all my colleagues go to for the latest updates on inflammatory bowel disease coming in line with the existing evidence. I think we may be seven or eight years behind the American College of uh, Cardiology coming out recommending a plant based or healthy uh, vegetarian diet for the prevention of um, heart disease. But certainly, just a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago now, in clinical gastroenterology and hepatology, we had a, a dietary guidance from the International Organization for the Study of Inflammatory Bowel Diseases, a very official sounding group of international academics who recommended um, in that guidance that for patients with Crohn's disease, we need to be finding ways for our patients to increase their intake of fruits and vegetables whilst decreasing their intake of saturated fats and trans fats and emulsifiers and maltodextrins and, artificial foods. And they did they recommend a whole food plant-based diet? They didn't overtly, Chuck. But does a whole food plant-based diet tick every single box for their dietary recommendations? Yes. There's a very closely related condition to Crohn's disease called ulcerative colitis, which I also treat. And we saw a paper again appearing in a mainstream journal just a few weeks ago back in May, advising that a low-fat, high-fibre diet improved outcomes in quality of life in patients with ulcerative colitis. And for any of your listeners who are GI doctors or nurses or physician assistants involved in the treatment of inflammatory bowel or for any of your listeners who are individuals or family members or loved ones of individuals with Crohn's disease or inflammatory bowel disease, I will, I will send you, Chuck, like four key papers from mainstream medical journals that if they ask their GI specialist, does diet have anything to do with this, I'd like to make, start making some healthy plant-based choices, and they say no, there's no evidence for that. You, you will have the links, Chuck, they can just go to your show notes or to your website, and they can get these four key papers, present them to their specialist, and say now please help me to make these changes. For so many of my patients, particularly those with milder disease, or those patients who haven't required surgery yet, or patients who don't have any permanent narrowings in their gut, making these healthy choices is just a matter of getting a healthy plant-based cookbook or signing up for the PCRM 21-Day Kickstart Program or something similar and starting to make the change. But sadly... By the time we make the diagnosis of Crohn's disease, many patients will have already had the condition for seven, eight, nine, or 10 years. The early symptoms may have been mistaken for just a little bit of indigestion or, you know, nothing serious. And if you have permanent damage to your gut, if you've had sections removed from your bowel, as about 50 percent of patients with Crohn's disease have had, you really benefit from having the help and advice of a registered dietitian works with patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Now, I'm lucky in my practice to have several dietitians like that, but every IBD unit has excellent dietitians. And if you can give them the evidence supporting that you want to have tofu instead of chicken breasts, you know, they will help you to make those changes.
1: Let's talk about the unfortunate people who do have surgery. How long is the recovery time? It sounds like it's quite invasive. And moreover, beyond that, what is the prognosis as they move forward in life?
0: So for patients who are diagnosed with Crohn's disease, sadly, um, within 10 years of diagnosis, about 50% would have required surgery to remove part of their bowel That has been permanently damaged by inflammation, which is why it's so important to talk about prevention. So important to talk about prevention and the same healthy dietary choices that will help to prevent obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease will help us to prevent this condition. Once people have had one surgery, often they can return to a very normal quality of life. But once someone has had that first operation, gastroenterologists like me, we watch them very closely because if that disease comes back we need to know about it sooner rather than later so we can catch it at its very earliest stages and take action so that they are at less risk of needing further surgery so every patient who comes to see me in my clinic Chuck, we talk about food we talk about food we talk about medication we talk about mri scans we talk about every tool in the box we definitely talk
1: What's the typical reaction from your patients when you do bring up this idea of a whole food plant-based diet? I would imagine the majority of them coming in had never even considered such a thing. It's a process.
0: Here in the UK, we get 55 to 60% of our calories from ultra-processed or junk foods. We eat, I think, an average of 86 kilograms of meat per person per year. I think the figure is more like 100 kilos per person per year in the U.S., we don't get many calories from fresh fruits and vegetables. Most people don't even reach the modest five-a-day target. So when I start talking to my patients about food, number one, I've got, I've got an entry point because they've all got digestive health problems. That's why they're seeing me, sadly. But so they're expecting an answer. They will ask me about food if I don't bring it up. So I usually start very gently, Chuck. I'll ask every single patient how many pieces of fruit you eat every day how many servings of vegetables do you eat every day and how many servings of whole grains do you eat every day and just and again no blame aside it's the food culture we live in often the answer to those questions will be um, i don't eat fruit I have vegetables at the weekend when we have our big family meal on Sunday and what what exactly is a whole grain that, that is very often the, the response and if that's the response we 've got our first healthy dietary intervention. Let's talk about fruit, and I'll explain to you about whole grains. And we start with baby steps. But every, every appointment, I'll be checking in on their progress. Of course, thanks uh, to the work of PCRM and plant-based health professionals, and let's face it, more to the work of the good people at Netflix, with documentaries like What the Health and the Game Changers now, in every living room on the planet. I'm getting more patients who are coming in to me and they're already primed and ready. They, they know that a healthy, ultra plant based diet is going to be a healthy thing to do. And if I start talking about eating more plant based options, they will often say, oh, what if I go completely plant based? You know, I've just seen this documentary called The Game Changers. Um, I want to eat like that. Should I? Would it be helpful? And I'm just like, Yes, I'm glad you saw that documentary. Let's make some changes. And again, For patients with milder or earlier disease, they can eat whatever they want. They can choose to eat junk. They can eat healthy whole food plant-based. They've got no issues. They can choose whatever food they wish. But for patients with more severe, more established disease or post-operative patients, we really want to involve a registered dietitian to make sure that they're getting all the nutrients that they need, not specifically because there's any deficiencies on a whole food plant-based diet. But just because if you have very diseased segments of your bowel, then even getting sufficient calories per day, no matter what your diet style can be a challenge.
1: It's amazing to me how oblivious people are until they have an intervention process or, or, or just that, that moment where the light bulb goes off in their head, how oblivious they are to just how few fruits and vegetables and whole grains they actually are eating in their diet, because as you you, you coined it so well, you call it food culture, and food culture does not dictate an abundance of these types of foods.
0: No, sadly. Um, and as I said, those three little questions. Um, can really just start some really, really powerful conversations.
1: Absolutely. All right. Uh, kind of in the home stretch here, we need to wrap things up, but I can't let you yep. go first uh, without asking about your uh, happy gut course uh, that is online. I, first of all, I love the name of this thing. Like that gets me excited about gut health, right? The happy gut course. Who wouldn't want to sign up for this thing? Tell us a little bit about it.
0: Um, so, the happy gut course, and uh, thanks for asking about it. So, I'm good friends with Stephen and David Flynn also known as the happy pair. They are an absolute twin powerhouse of positivity, Steve and Dave. So they're twin brothers who've been eating a whole food plant-based diet for like 20 years. They were way ahead of the curve um, on that. They've got awesome cookbooks, restaurants. They've they've been on plenty of TV shows. Well, a few years ago, um, they asked me if I could help them to set up a healthy, whole food plant-based course to help improve people's gut health. Because as we know, a healthy whole food plant-based diet takes all the right boxes for excellent digestive health. But then we see a lot of people who make the change to a healthy whole food plant-based diet, and they start experiencing some bloating or extra gas or symptoms that we typically associate with irritable bowel syndrome, which is a whole other, whole other area that we haven't discussed today. And of course, we see that people are eating a standard Western diet, and they've got irritable bowel syndrome. They've got bloating and discomfort and... We wanted to do a six-week educational course that would teach people about how to get a healthy whole food plant-based diet, how to do that in a way that's really gut-friendly, and also just to learn the basics about like vitamin B and B12 and all of those things. So we put together a six-week course. This year, Chuck, we've had 4,000 people through the course. Um, and what we do is we get them on a diverse whole food plant based diet, but we also use the scientific approach behind FODMAPs, these fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, these very fermentable compounds that are very prevalent on a plant based diet, as they should be, because they promote a healthy gut microbiome. But we know that if we take them out for a period of time and then slowly reintroduce them, we can really improve people's gut health. And people learn a whole lot about which plants, their gut microbiome tolerates really well. The low FODMAP with introductions approach has been around for years, but guess what? FODMAPs are healthy. There are no FODMAPs in unhealthy foods. Eggs and bacon are low FODMAP. So often when people are trying to improve their gut health, they'll just eat eggs and bacon. The bloating goes away, and they think, "Ah, oh, this is great. I should eat eggs and bacon every day. So what we designed is we kind of, we kind of pushed right back against that. We have a healthy, whole-food, plant-based six-week course, which is low fatma but also provides healthy, whole-food, plant-based recipes with a diversity of plants. So it's been such a lovely experience. But 89% of people who sign up for bloating around yes report significant improvements in their gut health, and like 98% said they would recommend it to someone. So it's been, it's been a real trip, that course, actually. It's, out, it's, you know, it's overachieved. It's done better
1: than I ever expected. It's been wonderful. And what's the website for people to go to if they do want to sign up?
0: Um, if, you, if you just do a quick Google search for Happy Gut Alan Desmond, it'll pop right up. It should be the first result.
1: Cool. And I'll go ahead and I will drop that link in the show notes as well. By the way, I love the fact that you listened to the show and you knew that I would put the studies in the episode notes. That that is kudos to you, my friend.
0: Um, Um, I'm a big fan. I recommend your podcast to everyone. It's, it's It's such a joy to be honest. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, man, you humble me man because like I'm, I'm such a big fan of you and all the doctors that do just uh, this tremendous work uh you know it blows my mind that you all would invest your time listening to the show the same way that i invest my time reading your studies getting the opportunity to speak with you just I have this unquenchable thirst for knowledge and you guys do I mean, you fuel it, and I love you for it so much. Uh, But lastly, uh, ICNM 2020 coming up August 6th through 8th. You will be presenting there as well for the first time ever. This is exclusively online. Uh, I'm assuming uh, you're going to have a very interesting topic. What are we talking about this year?
0: Yeah, so August 6th to 8th, I absolutely can't wait. Um, I am opening alongside Dr. Kim Williams. Um, For anyone who just listened to this podcast, flick back a couple of episodes, listen to your interview with Kim. Absolutely fascinating on uh, inequalities and risk in COVID-19. But I'll be speaking about Crohn's disease in great depth. And I'll also be talking about this really nice program that we ran here, right here in the southwest of England, just before the pandemic, where we took 100 health professionals, frontline healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, um, pharmacists, physician associates, etc., and got them to switch to a whole food plant-based diet for the first time ever. These were hardcore omnivorous individuals and we put them on a healthy whole food plant-based low fat dietary intervention for just four weeks. And I'll be discussing the outcomes that we saw and the impact it had on their cardiovascular risk factors. So some really interesting findings there and I'm sure people will enjoy learning more about
1: it. I cannot wait for that. And uh, we have a special offer for exam room listeners. If you use the promo code exam 20, lowercase exam 20 uh, over at pcrm.org slash ICNM, we will give you 20% off registration for all three days of this incredible conference, including your very own presentation. Dr. Desmond, thank you so very much for taking the time to join us, my friend.
0: Absolute, ple- absolute pleasure, Chuck. I look forward to seeing you again, my friend.
1: Sometimes you just get into these conversations with people that you wish would never end. It may be the first time that you've ever had the opportunity to speak with them, but it's as if you've been talking your entire lives, your old friends. That was what that conversation with Dr. Desmond was like. He's so, so cool to talk to. So cool to talk to. He's a guy that just gets it and he's passionate about it and that makes all the difference in the world. You can tell that passion how much he cares and wants to help his patients and educate everyone about this. Very interesting what he had to say about the influence of the standard western diet and the prevalence of Crohn's disease. Wasn't that big of a deal. Was not that big of a deal until we started to eat those high fat high-calorie, processed food, meals in abundance. And there's a lot more that he is planning to talk about at the upcoming International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine that will be August 6th through 8th, as we mentioned during the interview. And remember, you can use the promo code EXAM20 for a 20% discount on the cost of registration. That's EXAM20, lowercase exam, and the number 20, Use that to save 20% off the cost of registration when you log on to pcrm.org slash ICNM. August 6th through a three days chock full of information, the likes of which you have never heard before. We're talking about groundbreaking research, the latest studies, and the kind of information also that amid this chaos you're going to hear And it will help put things into perspective for you. That maybe, maybe there is a silver lining in all of this and things aren't necessarily as bad as we think they are. Because at the end of the day, there is always hope. And in this case, that hope is backed up by FACTS. So that's coming up at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, August 6th through 8th. Use the promo code EXAM20 for a 20% discount. Moving on now. More than 30 million Americans are currently living with heart disease. And in some way, they can actually be considered the lucky ones. Because heart disease is the leading cause of death in the U.S., attributable to nearly 650,000 deaths every single year. And that outpaces all forms of cancer combined and accidents. And yes, even amid this pandemic, with COVID-19, it is still the leading cause of death. And experts also say it doesn't have to be that way because heart disease is one of the most preventable chronic diseases out there. And because of that, hundreds of thousands of lives could be saved every single year if we weren't living in this fast food nation. On the Exam Room Live recently, I had the opportunity to speak with one such expert, a gentleman who would rather be treating heart disease in the kitchen rather than the operating room, talking about the chief of cardiology at Kaiser Riverside, Dr. Columbus Batiste. I think that you're going to enjoy this conversation. We're going to learn a whole lot, including how COVID-19 attacks the heart there was a study recently published in JAMA cardiology that found that of 100 patients between the ages of 45 and 53 78 of them had inflammation of the heart and the lining around it there's even some worry that that damage could be permanent So what is the cardiovascular COVID connection? Dr. Batiste will be getting into that. And we're also going to be talking specific to that about Boston Red Sox pitcher Eduardo Rodriguez, who announced that he is on the shelf, had to take himself off the field because he became infected with COVID-19 and then developed a heart condition because of that. So how quickly could he possibly get back on the field? We're going to find out when we speak with Dr. Batiste right now. Dr. Batiste, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today, my friend.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Once again, great to finally meet you and see you you, uh, virtually. I won't say in person, but virtually. (laughs)
1: Virtually, indeed, what what do we have, like 3,000 miles between us right now? Um, So in the lead up, I was giving some statistics about heart disease and and about 650,000 deaths every year. Some experts who I've interviewed on the show say at least half of those cases are completely preventable. As a cardiologist, do you agree with that assessment? Well, it
2: is, I mean, we know that statistically speaking, we know that nearly 80% of the disease burden is preventable. And now, it's a combination. Whether or not we're looking at smoking, whether or not we're looking at uh, lifestyle in terms of nutrition, which is obviously uh, uh, the, the core component of, of what my intent is, looking at inactivity, those things play such a substantial role in the development and progression of coronary artery disease that starts from childhood all the way through to adulthood.
1: I like to paint with words here. So I'm going to ask for you to put on your verbal paint, uh, your verbal paintbrush here, as it were, and and walk us through what happens to a person's arteries, both immediately after they eat a Big Mac, and then what are the long-term consequences in those arteries if they eat a Big Mac every single day? Paint that picture for us. What happens inside?
2: Yeah. So, you know, when you have whatever the substance is, whatever the type of 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 a fatty meal that's ultra processed that as I like to characterize, it melts in your mouth, not in your hands, right? That when you (laughs) absorb that, now all of a sudden your sugar levels rise. And because it's likely been repetitive, your body is unable to really process that. And so your blood sort of turns to sludge. So instead of it being highly viscous and it swishing through the vessels, now the, the vessels, the blood coursing through turns to sludge and it's moving very slowly and, and very lethargically. And the vessels no longer, which formerly were, may have been able to expand and accommodate according to the needs of increased blood flow that's required, now they begin to constrict down. So now in that instance, as you're eating this food and you start to wonder, is this heartburn that I'm feeling, uh, this indigestion that you're feeling? And the question really arises, is that indeed, Heart burn or is that your heart burning from the the ill effects of the food that you've given and that you've had? And so now as the endothelium, that special lining, that super superhero type of lining that encases the vessels to protect it becomes damaged, it constricts down. Once it constricts, that diminishes blood flow and may bring about symptoms of, of uh, what we call ischemia or lack of blood flow to the heart muscle that women will present differently. They may feel fatigue. they may feel some back discomfort, they may feel nauseated or a little bit dizzy, or you may get the prototypical symptoms that have typically been characterized in men of that crushing chest discomfort called Levine uh, 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 syndrome that you have with a hand over the heart, the jaw, the neck, and so forth, break, breaking out in a sweat. And these are the things that pretend itself towards a heart attack. Now, The key thing is most times folks think that, oh, it must be a blockage of 70, 80, 90% that lead to a heart attack occurring. And I tell people all the time, it's not the 70, 80, 90% that lead to heart attacks. It's a 10, 20, 30, 40%. Those areas of disruption, of plaquing, of mild erosion that would never show up on the EKG. They would never show up on a stress test. They would never show up on the echocardiogram, but these areas become unstable And then in that moment now, either it's because of stressors of life, it's over the stressors and fear of COVID or of social unrest, or perhaps it's from this food that we've taken on to comfort ourselves, this quote unquote comfort food, that now we destabilize this small area, then then it erupts and it explodes. Just like a pimple on the outside, this happens on the inside. This eruption then leads to the cascade of events that shuts the vessel down in a moment.
1: You, you just mentioned uh, social unrest. You mentioned COVID. Uh, then we've got everyday stressors that certainly have not gone anywhere. That kind of presents a triple whammy in terms of stress. Would you say that yep. by and large right now that we need to be taking better care of our hearts now more than ever?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's one thing. So many may have a perfect dietary intake, but they're stressed beyond belief. And so what we've seen during this time of COVID is that there is a condition called Takosubu, stress-induced cardiomyopathy that happens from this unrelenting surge of stress hormones due to emotional stressors that you may have from the loss of, of life, the loss of loved ones, the loss of a pet, different things like that. But even we look at the loss for grieving over the loss of normalcy. Not being able to congregate like what we used to, not being able to have that social interaction, and so many people are suffering. And as a result, studies have shown an increase in what we're calling stress-induced heart attacks. So our mind and body are connected, and so it's it's the stressors that we we experience from day to day interaction then are compounded by what I like to call nutritional stressors, right? That we're in, in nutritional stress is not just eating food that's unhealthy it's not eating food that is healthy. So it's also the absence of eating health-promoting foods. So oftentimes I get I hear people all, all the time in my clinic and in the community, they say, Doc, I don't eat this. I don't eat that. I don't eat the other. Well, what do you eat for your health is equally as important in the process.
1: I want to uh, focus specifically on COVID-19 right now. Yesterday, we had Dr. Kim Williams on the show, and he said something that I found was really interesting. We hear about the racial disparities in the outcomes of COVID-19 patients and the risk uh, disproportionately affecting African-Americans and, and minorities. But what Dr. Williams told me was that it's really, based off his research and what he's seen, it's risk and not race. And what he meant by that is, if the playing field were absolutely leveled, you would not see this health disparity. He said, if anything, being African-American offers a slim margin of protection against COVID-19. Is that accurate in your opinion? So I, I, I'm i not certain. I've,
2: I'm up to speed with what research he's quoting. But what I can tell you is that 2020 has really uncovered America's very little secret. And it's exposed what I call is the fact that America as a whole is living sicker in dying sooner than other industrialized countries. And we know this based off of historical data and epidemiological data looking at our outcomes. But within this subset of, of this powerhouse nation on the globe on the global stage, within the subset, we have a core group of individuals who are black and brown who have stark health disparities that have been persistent throughout the, the eons of time. And so what is uncovered is the fact that, yes, those people who are black and brown tend to die sicker and sooner from heart attacks, diabetes, stroke, um, et cetera, is what is, it's distinctly exposed. Now, the real question is why? It's why. Oftentimes, if you look at it as just fact, okay, this, the sky is blue, the sun is yellow. It's warm outside, you know? Um, but the question is really why? Why do these health disparities exist? And so it's very complicated when you really get, dive into the health disparities as to why they exist. It's some of it is historical. Some of it is a systematic type of, 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 of situations that have occurred over the eons. Some of it's access. It's what we globally characterize as social determinants of health. It's the environment that lends itself to culture, that lends itself to the food that's available, that lends itself to increased stressors that all all boil in this crucible that pretend itself to disease. And I think that COVID has really uncovered it. So when you look at COVID and its interplay, as far as in attacking the endothelium, I know we're gonna jump into that, and how that is tied to basically all the disease burdens of Alzheimer's, to, to uh, diabetes, to high blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera, that's where the problem lies. Um, so I'm not, I'm not certain about the research, but those are some of the things that we know and that I've looked at. And there, there's clear clarity in terms of what's been shown in, in literature and what we're seeing in this 2020 short time.
1: Well, let's talk about the way that COVID does, in fact, attack the heart. There was a study published uh, just this week in JAMA Cardiology uh, that tracked, I believe, 100 patients and showed that the vast majority of them, uh, these were patients between the ages of 45 and 53, and the vast majority, more than three quarters, showed some sort of inflammation uh, in the heart muscle and the lining there. What do we know about the way that this disease is, in fact, attacking the cardiovascular system?
2: Well, I think that's one thing we know is we know that it's evolving our knowledge and our understanding of COVID and its process and the way in which it's really, um, really attacking the body. But one of the hypotheses that have been set forth, in addition to the ACE receptors, and we're looking at the endothelium, is that this seems to be an entry point. And so for those in the audience who may be unfamiliar with Dr. Esselstyn's beautiful rendition of how the endothelium is so profound and it it works in, uh, on the body and protects, the endothelium is that inner lining. It's the inner skin that lines all of the vessels. And so I like to call it It's almost like a Teflon pan, although many of us perhaps aren't using Teflon pans as much, but nothing sticks to it when it's intact. It's completely impermeable and it prevents things from attacking, but it gets worn just like that Teflon pan over time. And now folks who are out there who maybe haven't risen to the knowledge of awareness may spray, start with PAM, and then may add oil onto that that cooking pan in order to, to still cook. Your endothelium, as it gets worn, it now becomes permeable and it, becomes, it has the potential to become inflamed. And so the whole process of atherosclerosis, right, that's the invagination of this fatty material is an inflammatory process that occurs. And so what studies are showing is that this COVID virus attaches to some of the receptors, which is why hypertensive patients are susceptible, but also it goes and tracks through the endothelium and that's what leads to a lot of the events. Um, then when when folks really uh, succumb to this diffuse event that leads them into the hospital, we know this is a diffuse inflammatory response that typically occurs and so it's all connected. It really is all connected in terms of what's transpiring.
1: You know what I find interesting is that COVID is also attacking people who are you would think at least are relatively physically fit. The case of Boston Red Sox pitcher Eduardo Rodriguez just yesterday announced that he was going to be shut down for a period of time because he has a heart condition that they believe was brought on by COVID-19. He's hoping to be back in the lineup next week. To me, that seems like a quick turnaround, but what do we know as far as how quickly a person can actually reduce inflammation around the heart, uh, whether it's COVID-related or not? Is that too aggressive of a timetable to get back on the playing field?
2: You know, it's hard because everyone's such an individual, but that's one that brings up, you bring up a great point, which is just even in asymptomatic individuals, we're seeing that the lungs are showing manifestation of scarring or issues of impairment. Even when someone seems as if they're they're asymptomatic, we're finding that heart patients too as well, our patients are having, just as you point, true to point, areas of inflammation or weakening of the heart muscle. And these are releasing what we call troponin values, which are essentially markers that denote the protein specific for an organ system. This one, as it pertains to the heart, are being released. So the timetable in in terms of healing or recovery is really it's multifactorial. It's going to likely depend upon how much of a hit his heart took, how strong it is, how strong it, it isn't, how high his markers went. Um, the level of concern, what type of imaging they've done, all those things will, will play a role in whether or not he's having symptoms of discomfort or shortness of breath. But it's hard, you know, obviously, to give general recommendations for someone we haven't um, directly spoken with. And but I think the key thing is trying to protect ourselves from really contracting it, the, the COVID virus, because it can really negatively impact us. And I think that's one of the key things that you brought up is that someone who appears healthy Appears strong, you think, well, they can't possibly get it. We never know what's brewing underneath the surface, and all of us are in a constant warfare against illness versus wellness. You know, and we, we've this has been well delineated in terms of cancer, and, and with prior reports saying 40% of women by the age of 40 have precancerous breast cancer cells floating around, and 50 to 60% of men have pre prostate cancer cells floating around, and nearly 100% by the age of 70 80% will have thyroid type cancer cells around our bodies in this constant warfare. And so the foods that we eat, our mindset, all those, our activity, all play a unique role in trying to arm ourselves.
1: Uh, Let's talk generally here about uh, heart inflammation. Uh, You are a guy who would much rather be treating heart disease in the kitchen than in the operating table or operating room, I should say. Um, In terms of effectiveness in in treating heart disease, inflammation, how effective is a plant-based diet compared to the standard forms of treatment?
2: Yeah, no, I I think that what we know. We First of all, we don't have head-to-head comparisons, and it depends on what question we're truly asking. So that's a very useful question, but I'll break it down a little bit further. One is in the realm of the throes of an acute heart attack, right? So in the, the form of an acute heart attack, I'll analogize that to a blowout on the freeway, a tire being blown out on the freeway there is an issue there's different degrees from a flat tire all the way out to a a tire that gets blown out on the freeway that something may have to happen in the immediate instance in order to 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 troubleshoot and make sure you do tend to that but then you have individuals where perhaps maybe the air is a little bit low on the tire individuals where you know they they tend to drive recklessly over nails and so forth and we know that there's extreme power in trying to change the habits in trying to take care of those tires to really prevent the tire from blowing out, to prevent the issues from happening on the expressway at that point in time. And that's where I really see the difference. So in a saying of acute heart attacks, um, that is not the immediate timetable to implement a therapeutic plant-based nutrition as a sole means. It's more, it, from my perspective, is meant to be used um, uh, in concert. So it should not, you know, because oftentimes what we see in the work that's been done by PCRM has been incredible, really, in pushing legislation to really try and change the core components of hospital dietary intake becomes extremely important because it makes zero sense to feed patients inflammatory foods that are just going to flame the, the flames of disease and for heart disease after we've gone to take care of and stem the tide of the massive heart attack that's occurring. In the outpatient arena, My stance is, is that I can go ahead. My sole goals are to help you feel better or help you live longer. The vast majority of cases, study after study after study has told us that the stents, that many of the bypass surgery in the elective setting are not life-saving, that oftentimes they're symptom alleviating. And so I tell patients, if I can achieve you resolving your symptoms with the least negatively impactful treatment. Which means nutrition, exercise, stress reduction, eliminating toxins, that those are the that's a preferential course because that not only is going to help you from getting an immediate heart attack, but getting that second or third heart attack, because we know about thirty to thirty-five percent of heart attacks that occur every single year are from a secondary, a recurrent heart attack that happens. And so that's really the key of treating folks. And so that's what led to not only the lecture series that I put on, but also what we characterize as our, our cath lab. Cath lab is where we take patients to put stents in and to do special procedures. So I coined the term cath lab, cooking alternative to health, as an area in which we do the same thing. We go ahead and our goal is to offset and to prevent a heart attack from occurring and to stop and improve the symptoms from happening.
1: Dr. Patish, you are involved in one of the better projects that I've heard of in a while, certainly one of the most intriguing, uh, the Slave Food Project. Uh, Got a chance to flip through that a little bit last night and again this morning before we, we, we got the opportunity to talk today. Walk us through what this is. I actually think that this is just a brilliant project that you're pulling together here.
2: Yeah, so, no, thank you for that. And I appreciate the words of affirmation and encouragement with it. You know, we were chatting earlier and there's different ways, always different ways to tell the story. And and so this is a different way of looking at the story. And so slave food actually is kind of a double entendre. It, it's really looking at its layered meaning. So not only, yes, there's a historical connotation of slave food where food was given as far as the refuse was given to slaves at that point in time. And they had to kind of build a new culture and a means of of, of, of uh, providing nutrients for themselves. But really, slave food is really about an issue of lack of choice, that we all at times are enslaved to our environment, that some are, great, are more enslaved to their environment than others. We call these food deserts and food swamps without the absence of health-promoting foods or an overabundance of foods that are deleterious, that we find that folks have the perception that that eating healthfully is expensive because the food is subsidized by the government. And so they feel as if they they don't really have a choice. We say make a better choice, but all that's around them is their environment that's filled with foods that are disease forming. And so slave food is a project that seeks to to explore the relationship between uh, 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 food deserts, food addiction, uh, stress, but also looking at the impact of discrimination. That discrimination can be based upon gender. It can be based upon ethnicity. It could be based upon sexual orientation. But these stressors that mount, and what studies have shown is that stress alone, which all of us, all Americans face stress, that pretends disease. It increase your risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, cancer, et cetera, et cetera. But there is another layer of stress that it's hard for certain individuals to escape in the form of discrimination that also portends towards poor health outcomes. And so when we look at that, we know that there's shortened telomeres. And there was a study, interesting study was done from one of the conversations we're hosting these slave food conversations. And we had um, a PhD public health uh, professor come on and he made reference to a study that was done of teenage African-American girls. And they measured the telomeres where their stress was high. They felt the impact. They perceived discrimination. It's not really about whether or not it's real or, or not. It's just if you perceive it. And they measured their telomeres and their telomeres were the same, were shorter actually than middle-aged women with breast cancer. That's huge. That when you look at the power of the impact of a person's environment and shortening their lives that they live sicker and sooner. But here was the key that was so incredibly hopeful because I think that we have to always look, what's the hope, what's the silver lining inside of every story is the fact that when they engage in starting to go ahead and mentor these young ladies, when they start encouraging them and empowering them through uh, and letting them know that they're loved, irrespective of their educational performance of anything else, but just for who they are, they showed that they were able to improve and lengthen. Very similar to the work that Dr. Dean Ornish did with Elizabeth uh, Blackburn, and showing the extension of telomeres through complete lifestyle change, nutrition, mind-body, smoking cessation, and those things are important. And so in my mind that there is hope. So we see, when we say, why is there this health disparity that exists in this country? that is not a black or brown issue, it's an American issue because you look at billions of dollars that are lost as a result of health disparities that get funded and shifted over into issues of dialysis or into heart failure or to various things of that nature that now you have lost productivity, lost years of earning potential, all these things that get get, um, added on it's so important for us to look at And so that's what slave food is about. It's about bringing awareness and bringing attention and cutting through and asking why, as opposed to accepting it just as fact as if there is some sort of um, DNA. And the key is your DNA is not your destiny. Your DNA is not your destiny that we can transform our epigenes through our nutrition, through our mindset that can impact our microbiome, that can impact our endothelium, that can give us protection to
1: improve
2: our health span, even if it's not our lifespan. None of us know our beginning from our end, but it's about how can we live on this earth healthier, longer, so we can be a value, we can be a purpose. And now that's really the goal of of slave food. Slave food starts looking at the African-American community, but it doesn't stop there. The next phase of slave food is then looking at other other communities. And that can go from individuals in the Appalachians, right? That can go to individuals who are who uh, of the Hispanic Latino, that can be of, of South Asian uh, group and looking at various um, aspects of culture that play a role into this essentially almost enslavement really from their, their environment. And that's what it's about.
1: Man, what a series. What a series. I would love to have you back on uh, sometime in the future, hopefully not too distant future to talk more about it. I feel like there is an awful lot still left to discuss with that, but you can check that out at slavefood.org. Dr. Batiste, thank you so much for your time today.
2: Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Nice to meet you. Finally, it's good to see you.
1: <laughs> Likewise, my friend. Likewise. I heard so much about you before today. It's so it's so great to finally have you on the show.
2: All right. Thanks, Thanks again. Appreciate you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Batiste. Slavefood.org is the website to go check out that series, a very important one at that. That interview was from the exam room live, and you can join us for that Monday through Friday at noon Eastern over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. You can find a link to both in the episode notes. Would love to see you there got so many great guests on the show. So many great guests. We had Dr. Neil Barnard, of course, this week. We heard the story of Adam Sud, who is now studying the connection between addiction and nutrition. I'm not talking about just food addiction. I'm talking about addiction recovery, substance abuse. So while somebody is in rehab for that, If they are taught proper nutrition, if they are given a plant-based diet, what does that do for their chances of succeeding and beating this addiction? He's running a study on that called the Infinite Study. It's a great show. I hope that you get an opportunity to check that out. Now, here's some other big news. We hear all about health on this show. And maybe you're like, man, I wish my doctor was as in tune as these guys are with nutrition. Well, here's the good news. Now, you can have a doctor just like that via the wonders of telemedicine and the Barnard Medical Center. That place is staffed up with doctors and dietitians who are 100% plant-based. And they practice preventative medicine. We're talking about treating the cause of the problem and not just the symptoms. It's not just about putting a Band-Aid over things and hoping that they go away. No, no, no. They are drilling down and attacking the issue where it lies and that's huge and you can work with their dietitians who will help zero in on your diet and if you're already eating a plant-based diet well they can help make you a next level vegan or if you're just getting going on your plant-based journey they can show you the ropes as well there's something for everyone everyone can get a little bit healthier and so even bigger news you can now sign up make an appointment if you live in the states of illinois indiana and pennsylvania all three recently added to the roster of states where the barnard medical center is available that comes right on the heels of the additions of both Florida and Georgia. All of this again via the wonders of telemedicine. So you've got those states plus California, New York, Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Missouri, Arizona, Colorado, Massachusetts, and Kentucky. When you add all of those states together and the district, you've got coverage of more than a quarter of the country and they're not stopping there yet. They are hoping to bring new states online very soon. But if you do live in any of those locations, you can make that appointment by visiting barnardmedical.org or picking up the phone to call 202-527-7500. You will find a link and that phone number in the episode notes as well. And as we round third and head for home on this edition of The Exam Room, please also don't forget to subscribe to The Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever shows are available. And when you do, please also leave that five-star rating. Because the more subscriptions we receive, the more five-star ratings we get, the higher we climb in the rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for someone who truly needs this information the most to find it. And if you really want to help, you can also share the show on your favorite Facebook groups. Just get the word out. Post it. Share it. Shout it from the mountaintops. Let people know about the exam room and help us make the world a healthier place thank you for that for today for this show that's going to wrap things up my thanks again to Drs. Columbus Batiste and Alan Desmond for joining us and for everyone here at the Physicians Committee I am the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll thank you so very much for listening and remember stay safe take a stand and keep it plant-based.